1: Howdy everybody. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love. It's called best of the left hosted by Jay Tomlinson with frequent guest contributors. The show is unlike anything else out there because it's all about curation rather than creation. Each episode focuses like a laser on a different topic, allowing deeper coverage than most shows are capable of. Recent topics include labor unions, how the reconstruction era is still affecting the politics of today, and a deep dive into the fate of neoliberalism. Best of the Left highlights all the best podcasts on the subject at hand to keep you informed. The value of curation comes from the expertise of the curators. The Best of the Left podcast just had its 16th anniversary, making it one of the longest running political pods out there. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander and I'm Ravi Gupta and this is majority 54 the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds change votes and win elections Uh, before we get into this episode I just want to let Kansas City listeners know uh, that you should hang on through the whole episode because at the end we're going to give you some information about uh, where you can hang out with Ravi and I in Kansas City this weekend all right now today well, Jason, I want to
2: save you from our our teacher in the audience I think it would be hang out with Ravi and me, right? Because you hang out with me. Uh, yeah. Dang it. Yeah. Yeah. She was going to underline that, that in, in red and send we're it in leave again. That Thank in. you. All right. My okay. favorite listener. All right. <laughs>
1: All right. Today, we're going to talk about how to talk about the midterms. On today's show, we're talking to Anat Shankar Osorio, a social science researcher and political messaging expert. Anat helps candidates and activists around the world win progressive causes by saying what they're for. Even better, she can tell you exactly why some messages succeed and others fail because she knows what moves people to take action. She is also the host of her own podcast, Words to Win By, which charts how messaging has won progressive victories around the world. We're going to chat with Anat about how to respond to arguments you're likely to hear from your conservative friends and relatives. Anot, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Now, let's just start here. In your own words, I just said all that fancy stuff, uh, but in your own words, can you just describe for us exactly what it is that you do?
0: What I do is I look really deeply and closely at language. I look at patterns in language. That's all social science is. It's just pattern recognition in order to first create a diagnosis around Phrases, ideas, often metaphors that are effective to convey what we want and move people to action, and ones that are not so effective. And what I found was that all of the biases and heuristics that make it difficult for us to change the habits of our target populations, our voters, are just as present in progressive advocates, because we're also just people with human brains. And so then I started doing longer term engagements, which is where I end up now, which is doing a bunch of research, figuring out this would be more effective, this is less effective, and then actually helping campaigns implement that through ads, through memes, through branding, through events, through really shifting not just what you say in a door-to-door canvas script, if you're going door-to-door because COVID, um, but also what kind of an event you even choose to do and how you frame it. All
1: right. Well, I was a political science major, but I've always found the science part of that laughable. But you're an actual political scientist. And the reason that we asked you to be here is because, you know, often we listen to voicemails from uh, from people who listen to the show and we try and help them out. But now we've like brought in backup. You're like the cavalry. You're here and you're going to give your expert opinion on how to handle a bunch of these really sticky issues. Uh, so thank you for doing that. We're going to get into these voicemails now.
2: Let's start with the listener who has a question about voters and education.
3: Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Dan, and I live in El Cerrito, California. I uh, Love the show. I'm calling because I saw a clip recently from an interview CNN did with a it was with a group of, of mothers in Virginia, um, and they had voted for Biden for for president, but had voted for the Republican for governor just recently. And what's interesting was that their their reasons were not critical race theory. Their main reason was school closures from the pandemic, and this really struck me because I'm I'm a parent of a of a first grader and a third grader, and as a as a lifelong Democrat, I I do think our party messed up on this one. Um, here in California, the schools were closed for for much longer than other parts of the country, and you know people who I know well here in deep blue California voted to recall Gavin Newsom over the issue. I mean, obviously, Newsom survived the recall. but And so I'm wondering, what, what do we do moving forward? Um, you know, if we, we speak to others who are concerned about this, what's the right way to, to take it from here? Thanks.
0: Ooh, a lot to unpack right there. The first thing I want to say is that what we perceive to be our own reasoning and what is actually unconsciously our own reasoning often very, very, very far apart. And so one can consciously believe that the full-out assault on critical race theory had no part to play. There's absolutely no way that a human being would be able to tell, would be able to accurately perceive whether or not that impacted them. So first, I just want to challenge the assumption embedded in there. Again, not because of those particular women in Virginia. This is human reasoning. That said- you do have to reckon with what they are consciously responding to, which is the school closure. I am also a public school parent. Actually, that person's neighbor. I live in Oakland, so El Cerrito just up the road from me. Very, very much understand what they're talking about. What you want to do is you want to begin by acknowledging and then redirecting. So you want to say, yeah, I totally hear you. I'm a public school parent myself, and figuring out what to do in this pandemic, it's been awful. It's been awful for all of us, especially those of us who are trying to make ends meet, work a job, and figure out what to do with our kids. The way that I see it, and this is where you pivot from acknowledging, is that what we need is a government that cares for us, that genuinely believes in and look after our interest. And what I saw on the Youngin campaign was the same old Republican playbook as usual, which is to divide and distract, to try to have a handful of folks engaged and enraged around lies about what our teachers were teaching so that we would look the other way while they continue to do what they've always done, which is take money away from our schools, take money away from our programs, take money away from our teachers and expose us all to this virus even longer by spreading their lies. And so it seems to me like if we want all of our kids to have the kind of public school education that we would want for our own, what we need to do is join together and demand an accurate, honest curriculum and demand the resources that would allow us to have what we need to get and stay well so we can finally move past this pandemic and be able to focus on what we want, which is raising our kids in a great environment.
2: I think like one thing I want to do is is take what you said about, you know, not, you know, we don't want to like say to people that this problem that you're describing is not a problem for you. Right. And for me, I think what was interesting is that this is a parent from California, but he's talking about Virginia. Right. And I think of Virginia, the CRT debate is is so commingled with the school closures debates. But As a Democrat, I get concerned when I see it, not like the school closure issue resonating with voters, not just in Virginia, but in Chicago and in New York City. And I just did some reporting for a different podcast I do called Lost Debate, where I interviewed various stakeholders in San Francisco, including the school board chair, who's under recall, and parents who are upset over San Francisco dragging its feet on school closures. And these are all liberals that I interviewed. And... What was clear to me after that was there was no right-wing boogeyman in that situation. It was a irresponsible school board that wasn't focused on opening schools up. There was massive learning loss. Uh, they s- kept spending time on the wrong things and didn't get the schools open in any way fast enough for you know the kids and parents. And uh, it wasn't tied to staff shortages. It wasn't at a time period when that was a major issue. And I get a little concerned when Democrats kind of like move past that too quickly and and don't revisit some of the policies that we've been pushing, because it seems like they've had some massively negative consequences for for kids in particular and parents.
0: Yeah. And this is true across issues. The acknowledge and redirect structure is really, really important because otherwise what you're saying to people in essence is... I'm an alien who does who does not see the world in the way that you see it, and I am coming from a completely different plane of existence. And so whatever you're gonna say subsequent to that is going to be rejected before it exits your mouth because it's sort of like you don't even, you know, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're sort of functioning on a different wavelength than I am, and you can't have a conversation with anybody like that.
1: I think it's important just to point out for listeners, like as I think about the acknowledge and redirect strategy. Um, there's a couple of things that I hear you doing. One is I hear you very carefully not using the word but or however or anything like that. Like, in fact, I think you said the way I see it is like you started a new sentence and said the way I see it. We at a place where it naturally like it's like you acknowledge I'm acknowledging your anger. I'm acknowledging I'm validating it. And I think a, a lot of people's instinct was to, was then to just say, but. <laughs> And instead, you just full stop and say, the way I see it, so that they don't know that what you're about to introduce might be counter to the emotional feeling they just got from you acknowledging and validating their anger. I think that's really important. Uh, And I also hear you wisely, not trying to convince them not to be angry about the situation at all. Like, you're not the way I see it And then trying to stealthily get them not mad about the thing they're mad about, you're trying to introduce for them something else that is uh, more causal, more underlying for them to be mad about instead.
0: It's both that, absolutely. And it's to pivot straight to, so let's fix it. Right. Not saying that word, that phrase, but basically, here's what you're feeling. I hear you. You're feeling this. And the solution to that would be to do this. If instead of focusing on that solution, we let anyone veer us off our course by getting distracted by anything else, we're going to move away from that solution. And that's what you want. And that's what I want. So let's go get that solution.
2: Jason, our teams are playing this week, and as they say here in Little Italy, they're they're going to be taking it to the mattresses, uh, and that's why I'm really excited about Helix Sleep because they've taken us to a different kind of mattress. I
1: thought it was go to the
2: mattresses. Go to the mattresses? What were we? Looking it doesn't back? matter.
1: Let's keep going. It's it's all right. Helix yeah. Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way. You sleep. Everybody's unique, and Helix knows that. So, they have several different mattress models to choose from. So, whether you want to take it to the mattresses or go to the it's mattresses, you going
2: to, you're correct. Whatever, yeah, whether, whether you're right them. or wrong, what kind Helix of is there Don, for you. I? I know, right? Yeah. Come
1: on. All right. Ravi and I both have Helix mattresses. We both took the quiz. We both love our Midnight Luxe mattress. We're not just pushing this product, we're fans of it.
2: Yeah, and go to helixsleep.com slash majority54. Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority54. That's helixsleep.com slash majority54 for up to $200 off and two free pillows. I'm back on the Babbel train. I've put down my Italian and I picked up Spanish. I think it's practical of me to start learning the language of this country, Costa Rica, that I've been going in and out of for the past year. And so sadly, I won't be attempting any Italian for a while on here, but in future weeks, I hope to come on and have something coherent to say in Spanish.
1: Uh, Babel's 15 minute lessons, they make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective, and with Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. It says here that it's possible that even a Bills fan can learn it. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So start your new language learning journey today with Babbel.
2: So right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use the promo code MAJORITY54.
1: That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MAJORITY54. Babbel, language for life. All right, not for this next question, I have to give you a little bit of background. Over the last couple episodes, we've been talking about things that the right wing says that we all dismiss when they might be effective arguments if we don't address them. And one of them was all the complaining that the right does about masks. And I was pointing out that while masks absolutely work, there's no question about that, that one thing that I do see that I think is a problem is when I go to a public event, where it's all, you know, everybody is vaccinated, you've shown your cards and everything. And, and, still people choose to wear masks. That's great. I don't have any issue with that. My problem was that I've been to these events where there are people not wearing masks. And then when it's time to take a photograph, they put a mask on in order to take the photograph. And that what often happens is there'll be a picture of them with the mask off and then posed pictures of them with the mask on. And I think that it makes us look really ridiculous when we do that. And I referred to that as performative mask wearing. And with that, let's uh, hear what this listener has to say about it.
4: Hello, Jason and Ravi. Uh, my name is Kate, and I'm calling from Hood River, Oregon. Today, I was listening to your podcast, and you brought up the concept of performative mask wearing. I wanted to share with you that that was quite triggering for me. But here in Oregon, we, there is a mask mandate, and we have been doing our part to be upstanding citizens. We also have a two-and-a-half-year-old child, and so she still is not able to be vaccinated, and we are still living as though we are under threat from the coronavirus because we are desperate to not have her be exposed. I hope that maybe you'll take an opportunity or take a chance to tackle the conversation of performative mask wearing. I personally am glad that um, Michelle Obama is still wearing it, even if it is quote-unquote performative. It shouldn't be political. It should just be taking care of your fellow humans and maybe that is virtue signaling <laughs> but in my case I wear it
1: because we still have to.
4: Okay, thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye.
1: Okay, so I think perfectly reasonable response and I and I appreciate this response very much. Here's the question that I have for you Anat um, you know from this context I gave you and from this voicemail which is, you know, now that we're a couple years into the pandemic and and still it doesn't seem like we've really figured out how to talk about this effectively. The CDC does, you know change uh, its advice and its guidance pretty frequently to the point where it's become a, a meme. With that situation in mind and with it always being a moving target, you know what should we all do when we hear somebody critical of the Democratic Party or frustrated with us because of these measures or because of, you know they saw a picture of somebody with a mask off and then a mask on. How should we handle that?
0: Oof, a big one. So the first thing that I want to say about that, I'm going to go meta for a moment, which is that social proof is real. It is one of the most persuasive tools that we have in our arsenal. And by that, I mean, people do the thing they think people like them do. And so we know through experimentation, for example, that talking about vaccine hesitancy increases vaccine hesitancy. Talking about XYZ demographic doesn't vote, they don't really turn out in the midterms, they are low propensity, et cetera, actually decreases voting participation.
1: Uh, Also, can I add one, which is talking about how hard it is to, like how hard the Republicans have made it to vote in a particular place causes people to say, it's too hard, I'm not going to go vote.
0: Yes. So talking about people's resistance to masks actually engenders more resistance to masks because it creates a kind of social approval for that behavior. And it's not only social approval within a certain identity category, it actually becomes sort of a Admirably, and by admirably, I don't mean I admire it, cause I don't. <laughs> but it becomes within a certain circle an admirable form of social resistance, an essential sort of fu to the man that is causing you to do this. It is no different to any form of rebellion in which people engage when they feel like, look at me, and and ironically, I would call that performative, right? We want to throw around that word some more, so. What I would say is that notwithstanding the ping-ponging, vacillating CDC guidance, which is just, I mean, what do you even say about that? Like, I don't have a magical answer for that because a message isn't a time machine. It can't revive the dead. Like, I can't go back in time and be like, why did you do all this and why did you say all this? That was not cool. And it definitely has created this era of... Sort of, you don't know what to trust, you don't know what to believe, you don't know what to think, you don't know what is right, which is not ideal. What I would say is that you need to know your audience. If you're talking to someone who is hesitant themselves or who is upset themselves or who is, you know, not into it themselves, then what you want to say is, yeah, I hear you. Mask is effing annoying. I don't like having to wear mine. I mean, who does, honestly? And What I think is, we want to start how we want to finish. And basically, I think all of us can agree, whether we're from the city, from the suburbs, from the north, from the south, big town, huge city, rural farm, we all want this pandemic over. I think that's something we can all share. And what we know from all the studies that we've seen, what we know from all of the research that's been done, what we know from the places where they actually have contained this and gotten it under control is that we got to take the power into our own hands. We got to be in charge of what we're doing with our own bodies. Notice this isn't a message that I would give to a progressive person. I want to be clear about that. And I don't know what people are doing. I don't know what people have. I don't know what they don't have. I don't know how often they wash their hands. I don't know what's going on in other people's houses and how clean they are. And so... What I choose to do, the way that I choose to protect myself and the way that I choose to protect my kids is by having as much control as I possibly can over my own environment, by taking the power into my own hands to make sure that I don't get sick and basically looking for every single tool that I can find at my disposal. And that means vaccines, that means boosting, and that means masks because I choose what happens to me and that's how I protect myself.
1: Well I guess the other thing I would add and you could tell me if this is crazy is that sometimes I feel like there are opportunities to establish greater credibility by just giving the person you're talking to a win right like like if you if you figure if they're complaining about mask mandates I think you can evaluate how greatly is, how likely is this to really affect their vote? Because it's such a messy issue. Like they're not exactly sure who to blame or whatever. Like, is it possible to just be like, like the first part of what you said, like, yeah, that has not been handled well. Like it is not clear. I got to hand it to you. It's not one of my favorite things that my side has done. And like, you know, if I guess to me, that's what I do sometimes, because it's like, if I've evaluated that, like they're irritated about this, but it ain't going to swing their vote. Well, then I'll just be like, yeah, yeah, we took a we, I, I'll take an L on one in order to have a greater chance to persuade them the next time.
2: Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think like that's how I felt about the school stuff, which is like I think that we went we, we kept them closed for too long. And in hindsight, we shouldn't have. And you can see people learning from that. The reason why Lightfoot and Eric Adams, for instance, uh, kind of pushed back. Uh, and even San Francisco is better today than they were a year ago is because people learn. And that's all you could ask from your politicians. I think there's also something underlying this, though, which is I think there are two things going on with some of the things like masks. One is I think there's a general sense of the electorate that there isn't a Litmus test being used by public officials and when they're going to roll back some of these things. And I don't think that's being communicated really effectively. And I think this is particularly worrisome to people who spend a lot of time in environments where they have to wear those masks, whether it's in you know their kids being in school or they work in a certain place where. Um, They have to wear them all the time. And I think people want to get a sense of what the test is going to be to roll those back. And I think some people don't like they think that Democrats are kind of safetyists who just want to, you know, like we don't want any risk anymore. And that there's a new test, basically, that if there's any death anywhere, if we roll these things back, then we're going to keep these things in perpetuity. And I think that's something we probably just need to address.
0: So I think two different things. I think the first is that with respect to how schools, in particular in public schools, I mean specifically, handle this, I think that we would be remiss not to note that there is a systematic difference in how white parents, in how well-resourced parents of every race respond to school closures and how Parents of color, especially lower income parents, especially parents who are in households with high degrees of comorbidity respond. That's my feeling about the policy, that it's all too simplistic to look at it in this way. My answer about the message with respect to what you both said about, you know, to quote you, Jason, taking the L, that can't be answered, in my opinion, in the abstract. Right. Right. And the theory of change that I operate under, and I think it's really important to be transparent about one's theory of change, that is all too often what democratic consultants refuse to be. And so it's sort of like, what are you saying? When you say XYZ is the winning message, how are you measuring winning? What mm-hmm. is your expectation? what how are you measuring the performance of that message and all too often the way that folks are measuring the performance of the winning message is as if the message's job were to run for homecoming queen and they say it was the most popular people Mm -hmm. liked it the best and i'm like well congratulations when that message runs for homecoming queen that's going to be really awesome But the purpose of the message is not to say the thing that is already popular. It is to alter people's perceptions, and it is to alter their behavior. And so when you're trying to decide, am I going to take the L here? Am I going to concede on this one? Which very well can be a smart thing to do. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm saying that has to be considered inside of a larger conversation in which your job is to engage your base- to move them beyond agreement to repetition, because if you don't have the choir singing, the congregation's not gonna hear the joyful noise, and persuade the middle. And in understanding how you persuade that middle, one of the most important things to know is that folks who are ideologically not entrenched, so not the left, not the right, but swing in between on issues and maybe even swing in between in terms of their party affiliation and vote choice, which is far more rare. It's much more common to be persuadable on issues, far less common to be persuadable on ideology because partisanship is a hell of a drug. People (laughs) who are persuadable on issues, what we see of them is that they hold multiple contradictory views on the exact same topic, and they don't want you to point that out to them. So they're capable both of believing that we shouldn't have had masks this long, schools shouldn't have been closed, you know, this shouldn't have happened, that shouldn't have happened, it was terrible, and the pandemic is really, really serious, and they're terrified, and what about their kids, and what about their neighbors? And they can think both of those things sort of on and off. And so it's really a question, genuinely, we've seen it in experimentation, Of what they hear repeated most frequently, because that becomes how the world works and common sense Mm. and what is true. But if you look at public opinion about BLM, Black Lives Matter, and protest and policing right around the summer of 2020, with the reemergence of the uprising and folks marching and protesting, not just across this country, but around the globe... Opinion swung wildly in favor of BLM in a really short order because social proof is real. People turn on their local news and they're like, huh, people who look sort of like me seem to be out in the street and they all seem to be sort of sharing this view. Once that goes away and instead they turn on the local news and they see a bunch of screaming irate parents going back to Virginia, first caller in Loudoun County, seeming to be very upset about this thing that in point of fact, they don't even really understand what it is. Then they're like, huh, I guess that's what people like me think. And so opinion changes based on what is repeated over and over.
2: In bringing it back to the the first point you made, you know, I totally agree with you that, you know families on the lower income side of the scale have higher risk factors when it comes to COVID, but they also have higher risk factors when it comes to the closures themselves, right? Like you look at the half year of learning loss that kids have on average, it's higher for black and Latino families, somewhere on the estimated of about a million kids who functionally dropped out of school altogether during this pandemic. And for me, and I think about this when it comes to like the BLM example that you gave, because it dovetails with messaging is, I think that we're out of step with the average person. and I think when I go when we go back to that first caller, I think that the right wing is successful not just because they're they're good at inventing fake controversies, but because we let certain controversies go unaddressed uh, and or we dig in our heels for sometimes for the wrong reasons. And that's where I think when, when Jason was talking about taking the L, I, I start especially when it comes to COVID, given how much things shift. And I think the the need for humility on behalf of our party has never been higher. I think like the need to take L's is as high as it's ever been. And we should be faster to do it because I think that in a way is related to messaging. I think when people see that humility and they're like, look, we were wrong and this is why we were wrong versus, you know, like I think one of the things that was frustrating around the, the, the CDC's guidance is often they're changing things and they're acting as if it's fully sound. <laughs> I think what they could have said more forcefully earlier, they eventually got around to it on this newest change in guidance was, look, we're we're at the point in our economy where there will be significant hardship if we keep this 10-day period of isolation, right? Uh, and so we're going to do five days. We're going to take into account more factors than we did before. And we hear you. Like You've been asking us in many ways to do that, and we're doing that, and this is why we're doing it. I don't know. I think I would love to see more of that because I think people are asking for that.
1: Well, maybe it's not then, like the way I put it, maybe it's not take the L, maybe it's like just going to your point and not about repetition, maybe it's repeating over and over again that, hey, we're, we're working with the latest data we have, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like maybe it's that kind of thing, like acknowledging reality to get to your point about acknowledging, but then, you know, the redirect is just the repetition of we're trying to work with the, with the information as it is. And then we have to actually do that.
0: What I would add, from the vantage point of the voter, from the vantage point of the people that we need to, as I like to describe it, return out, right, the people who newly surged in 18 and 20, who we need coming back in 22, I think an incredible point to make, and it's it's being illustrated right now, this week, with the new website where you can go and you can order the four at-home tests, right? I think a message that says, and I'm making this up on the fly, so it will need to be copy edited with that caveat, will say most of us, no matter what we look like, where we come from, believe that we pull through hard times by pulling together. And that's why we turned out in record numbers to vote for new leaders who would look out for our families and deliver what we need. We've been through and we continue to go through an incredibly hard time in which even the greatest experts are unsure sometimes from one day to the next. But, and I'm saying, but deliberately, what we have now is a government that listens to us. And when they wander off their way and we pull them back and we say, hey, no, we need tests, every single one of us, they come through and they deliver. When we say we can't make ends meet, they come through and they deliver with stimulus checks. When we say we're trying to care for our families, they extend a child care credit. Is it enough? No, of course not. Because every step on the road toward progress in our country's history has always been met with significant backlash on the part of a wealthy and powerful few who want to block everything that our families need by keeping us divided. What we need to do is harness our power, just as we did in 2018 and 20, and come back again to have more leaders who govern in our interest, who listen to our concerns and who change course so we can all get where we need to go.
1: It's fun watching you uh, do it like on the fly, because it reminds me of like, you know, when you go to a restaurant and like they they make the food in front of you. Like it's more, it's like, it's more exciting. Ravi, I don't know if you noticed this. Um, you and I, a couple of days ago, we we guested on uh, the Midas Touch podcast. And it was, I had the most like hilarious podcasting moment where I noticed on the Zoom.
2: He was drinking it. I saw it too. I almost interrupted the conversation over it, but I felt like it would be inappropriate. We're only allowed to interrupt our serious conversations with discussions of AG1. But, you know, AG1 is a small microhabit with big benefits, Jason. It's one thing you could do every single day to take care of yourself or do it twice like me. Your subscription comes with a year's supply of vitamin D, which is so important to add in these winter months when we don't get as much sunlight.
1: Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day, that's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I make no secret of the importance that therapy has played in my life and you know the opportunity to talk about this sponsor BetterHelp on a regular basis uh, I think it's a great opportunity because it's our our chance to encourage our listeners to make sure that they're taking care of their mental health
2: BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's convenient. You could start communicating in under 48 hours, and it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. You could send a message to your counselor anytime, and you get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule a weekly video or phone sessions. So I want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor are at betterhelp.com slash m54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, h-e-l-p.com slash m54. All right, now for
1: the next one, a really easy topic, uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, so so uh, in June, we're likely to have the court strike down or severely gut Roe v. Wade and abortion access for women across the U.S. The obvious question here is, how do, how do we talk about this issue? You've been asked that a lot, I'm sure. So two things I want you to think about is, will we be speaking about it differently, or should we be, if the Supreme Court does end up getting Roe, which we think they will, like, should there be a shift in the way we talk about it? And then just sort of layered over this whole thing, and maybe it's just a follow-up question I'm giving you now, which is, I think a lot of Democrats feel like this is a losing issue for them, and I'm I'm hoping that you feel differently, and if so, like, How does that affect framing? So there's a really complicated question.
0: It's absolutely not a losing issue. There's absolutely no evidence of that. In fact, if anything, especially in places like, you know, if you can mobilize Austin and San Antonio and Dallas and so on and the suburbs in Texas, if you can mobilize Madison and Milwaukee and so on in Wisconsin, which is my home state, then This is absolutely not just not a losing issue. This can be turned into an existential issue if Democrats know what the heck it is they're doing, which is, again, engage the base in order to persuade the middle. And that's where the giant mistake has been all along on abortion, which is that abortion, like many issues, has been siloed into this corner where... It's certain people's issue. And there's a handful of folks in the reproductive rights or health or the reproductive justice movement who this is what they talk about, rightly so, 24 7. But for most Democrats, for most progressives, for most people, we just sort of take it as given or we're not really worried about it. We're not really thinking about it. You know, climate is our top priority or immigrant rights is our top priority or all of them justifiable, meaningful priorities, for sure. (laughs) But because reproductive rights and abortion in particular have been siloed off to be this sort of special interest, which is laughable, what that means is that not enough people are aware of what this fundamentally could mean. So what does all that say in terms of a message? From my perspective, and I want to be clear that I used to do a bunch of message testing and work and repro in the U.S. I haven't done it in a while. What I have done is either participated in or just observed really, really closely and looked inside of the messaging strategy of both Argentina and Ireland, where there were relatively recent wins on completely flipping this issue in both of those cases, What we can see, and I would argue learn from those cases is, again, it's going to sound like I'm I'm, uh, product placing acknowledge and redirect, but acknowledge and redirect is a really important strategy in abortion. I'll demonstrate that in a second. And also making people understand how this actually is an issue for them. So how do you do that? The second thing that I said. One example and this was one of the approaches that was taken in Ireland, and it's something we've sort of started looking at in the U.S., is the simple sentence, someone you love might need an abortion someday. It's activating loss aversion. So many of us know all too well, again, I'm making this up on the fly, many of us know all too well the pain of seeing a loved one struggle with a pregnancy. Could be a pregnancy you dreamed of for years and years and years that slipped away. Could be a pregnancy that you were just too sick, too broke, too scared, or just unable to carry to term. Many of us will see someone we love or even ourselves confront this struggle, and we can't know what's going to happen in the future to any of our loved ones or to ourselves. Someone you love is probably going to need an abortion someday. It's pretty common. And what are they going to do then? What will they do? Where will they go? How will they get the care that they need? We need to come together and stand up today and make noise. This is pre-SCOTUS deciding and make it clear that whether and when to become a parent, this is me acknowledging and redirecting, whether and when to become a parent is an incredibly fraught and complicated decision that's really personal to every single one of us. And we don't make choices and set decisions for other people when we couldn't possibly understand what's going on in their situation or walk in their shoes.
1: Yeah. Okay. That, that works for me. I I like it. Let's do the next one.
0: I suddenly flipped you. Amazing. Well, I
1: mean, I I was already in agreement with you. Um, so perhaps I, perhaps I was the choir, but like you got me one to sing. All right. So for this next one, uh, this is about mobilizing non-voters. Uh, Anat, we recently uh, had a listener on the show, a guy named Ethan, who's a business owner uh, in Pennsylvania, who, you know, is a Democrat. He's very much a liberal, but he's very frustrated. And he, he was flat out saying, like, if something doesn't change, uh, I don't see myself voting. And so this person called in uh, to lend us some advice on how to deal with somebody like Ethan hey
5: guys i love the podcast i'm a 31 year old uh, it manager in minnesota and the last episode where you guys talked to the non-voter and then the the mom who felt caught in the middle uh was was really good in my family uh we have a couple people that you know are hardcore conservative or whatever but uh my cousin is a little bit younger than me and he is one of the people who is dealing with the same stuff in terms of deciding not to vote or whether to vote. So the way that I got through to them was a little different than what you guys had talked about, and I wanted to offer it up as an approach, potentially. So everything that you guys talked about was a lot about even the Democrats and, and kind of persuasion and everything about why our part, the party is good or, and stuff like that. Um, even Sutterman kind of bringing that up, like as an individual candidate, that's all fine. Um, what's worked better with my cousin is talking about him, himself, and the, the almost responsibility or power or uh, rights that comes with being a voter every time. The thing that I stress is more similar just to trying to make sure that he understands that Being a voter is about you, really just doing it because it's something that you should do, right? Instead of necessarily voting for any particular candidate, it's about you going to do it to exercise the rights because this isn't something to think about likely, even though you may not care about politics necessarily.
1: All right. So, Anat, is is this how you would recommend that listeners address non-voters? Uh, I'm guessing you might also have some some other tactics that you'd recommend.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, I feel like that listener, that voicemail is trying to put me out of a job. Um, <laughs> so I might need to find him because I think that almost everything he said was absolutely spot on. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. But first, I am going to go after the phrase non-voter. Sorry, you're not going to get away. So I don't like to call people non-voters or low propensity voters because you actually make your own reality. And when you keep Keep repeating that to people. They're like, "Sweet, I'm a non-voter. I don't vote. Cool. I'm not going to do it then."
1: Yeah, I have a category now. I'm sick. Yeah,
0: yeah. Look, I'll I'll just perform to type. You already told me. So no one is a non-voter. They're simply a voter we haven't reached yet. I call those people high potential voters if they are highly democratic. That's how they get that high potential name. And if they are this category that I alluded to before, they came out in this new surge, the 1820 surge. I call them vital voters because the task there is to not turn them out precisely, but to return them out. And there's a related but slightly different set of dynamics. We also just have a lot more data about the people I'm calling vital voters because we saw what happened with them in 18 and 20. And while we can't recreate those dynamics, this is a different election. There's an incumbency factor, which is a really big deal. There are things that we saw worked that we want to redo. Because when something works, you want to repeat it. So first and foremost, besides not calling them non-voters, but rather either high potential or vital voters, depending on whether they're returners or first timers, what we need to recognize is that vote is a verb. It's an action we need people to take and not a belief we need people to hold. And this is really hard for most of us to comprehend, those of us who are habitual voters, because, again, we're not accurate perceivers of our own motivations. So we think that we vote because we're super invested, we're super politically aware, we care a lot, we pay attention, et cetera, et cetera. In point of fact, what the research shows is that voting is habituated behavior. It's really not that different than flossing. (laughs) People own floss. They know how to floss. They've been told directly by a dentist, usually multiple times, about how they ought to be flossing. Floss is pretty cheap to get. It's ubiquitous, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, most Americans do not floss. Is that because they don't know? Is that because they don't understand? Is that because they can't purchase the goods? No, it is because none of those things. It's because people who floss, floss, and people who don't floss, don't floss. So, what do you do about something that is a habituated behavior that really, believe me, is actually largely not that ideological as much as it feels like? I vote because I care about the climate, climate or die. That's why I vote. That's why you think you vote. (laughs) You vote because you're a voter. So how do you crack that nut? First and foremost, social proof, as I said before, you make it a matter of everyone in your category group is in fact doing this thing. That is what your category group does. And then more pointedly, we create a voter agency message. So what does that sound like? Well, let's take the example of the Georgia runoffs. After folks had just voted, right, they had just flipped Georgia in the November election, they had to go back out and do it again. And the organizers and the activists and all of the incredible folks there, they were understandably exhausted, as we all were, and yet they had another election to confront, right, in January. And so one of the messages, not the only one, that they used was to voters was, our work is not done yet. It was, look what you did, look what you enabled, look what you accomplished. You did all of this together and we're doing it again. It wasn't a message about Democrats, it wasn't a message about the candidates, it was a message about you, the voter, and your own agency and how we did it before we're doing it again. The same thing was true of the California recall When things were looking dire here and the polls were freaking people out because it was looking 50 50, the campaign and the outside groups flipped from a message of fear, which is an inhibiting emotion. It causes people to shut down, shelter in, not want to act, toward defiance. So, away from, hey, if this recall goes through, if this elder dude comes into place, you're going to get COVID, you're going to get sick, and you're going to (laughs) die. which is a fear message toward if they think they're going to come into our state and put in their rules, they got another thing coming. We're Californians, not on our watch, not in our state, which is still a negative message. It's just a message that operationalizes defiance and anger. So it's really about making the voter the protagonist of the message and not the candidate or the party.
1: You know what this reminds me of? It's really interesting. Um, it reminds me of social pressure mailers and campaigns, which I bet a lot of people are not familiar with. I became familiar with it when I was Secretary of State. And I think the Democratic Party was using it. Uh, and I'm about to explain what it what it was. And uh, I got complaints about it in my office. And of course, like there was nothing illegal about it. And there was nothing we could do about it. Personally, I didn't see anything wrong with it. But what it was, was people uh, who were let's see vital voters uh, the way you uh, describe it uh, people who were vital voters were receiving mailers that used you know the, the voting rolls public information public information about uh, the frequency of voting to like with a map uh, an overhead aerial map of their street or their neighborhood and it would show which of their neighbors had voted frequently and then it would show like their house and be like you are behind your neighbors and interestingly it A lot of people got really mad and called my office. But if it exercised people in that way, I have to imagine that they were like, I don't want my neighbors knowing that I don't vote as much as them. And I bet they voted.
0: Yeah. So voter behavior, whether or not people vote, is one of the most studied aspects of messaging and persuasion because we're able to do field experiments on it. In field testing, what we're able to measure is actual behavior. So we're not asking you, would this sentence make you want to vote? And they're like, of course it would, because of course I'm going to vote is the I will pay you tomorrow of public opinion research. People lie about it all the time. Field testing actually measures did you or didn't you? So social pressure, the mailer that you described, that alone has been shown in experimentation to make meaningful differences. Again, these are all tiny little margins, but politics is a game of centimeters or millimeters. That make people vote more. So yeah, I mean, social pressure is a common tactic.
1: Yeah, I figure it works because, you know, I would say I remember to floss five to six days a week. But if a mailer showed up at my house and it kept score of how often I and my neighbors floss and my neighbors were flossing seven days a week, then you can bet that between then and the next election or period at which they're going to measure my flossing, like I'm going to floss... Six and a half on average days a week during that period is my expectation. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. We have run long, and we have so much more to talk about. So I'm going to say that I will promise the listeners that we will have a knot back in the in the near future and get through a bunch of these other questions and voicemails and that kind of thing that we had. We're going to get in now to a bunch of telling people where they can go to hang out with me and Ravi in Kansas City this weekend. So we're not going to make you listen through that uh, a knot. Thanks for doing this. We look forward to having you on again soon to get through a bunch of these other topics.
0: Thank you. It was great meeting both of you. And thanks for having me. All
1: right. Thanks a lot.
0: Bye.
2: All right, Jason, we're going to gas up the Majority 54 jet. you got to hide your folding tables out there in Kansas City, but break out the Buffalo Wings and barbecue because Bill's Mafia is coming to town. That means I'm coming to town, and so I'm expecting a warm welcome. We're going to be tailgating outside of Arrowhead Stadium. I think starting at 2 p.m. on Sunday, we have a sign-up form uh, so if you go to either my Instagram bio or your Twitter or mine or the show notes for this episode, people can sign up uh, and come. You can bring something if you want. You can bring other people if you want. Uh, I'm especially asking the Buffalo Bills fans out there, all two of you listening to this episode, to come uh, and show your colors because I don't want to be the only one by myself rooting for the Bills. Uh, yeah, I love, by
1: the way, the, the opening to that. I could tell. That you wrote that ahead of time, yeah. like yeah,
2: that was. I love, I love the commitment. I, I'm telling you, I was telling you this before we recorded that I have not done my job today. Just thinking about and planning this, this tailgate, and we have a a uh, really awesome series of listeners who are helping us organize this, and I'll shout them out next week uh, when we talk about the Bills' victory. <laughs> but uh, it's you know I've been distracted to the point of just zero productivity well, uh, over this whole You thing. have
1: done a fantastic job, and I will remind you on the record here uh, that on the record last week, you were like, I'm going to pay for it. Um, and I just want you to know that I have found a great deal on barbecue. It's going to be fantastic, award-winning barbecue, but it happens to be a friend of mine, and man, I am
2: saving you thousands of dollars. I'm just concerned that there were thousands of dollars to be saved over this, so I'm looking forward to seeing what this price tag is going to be. It won't be too bad,
1: but it, it's, people are not going to go hungry. Uh, it's going to be great. Alright, we expect to see you all there. You can go to to sign up to let us know how, about... We need to know numbers so we can provide the, enough meat. Um, go to uh, Ravi's social, and my veggies. social... And veggies. Of course. Ravi's social, my social. We'll probably have the link in the show notes, I assume. And, uh, you know, fill out... It's like a five-question little Google form and let us know. Alright, uh, this was an awesome episode. Uh, we're going to you know, keep going back to voicemails. We'll have a knot on again in the future. Leave us a voicemail: 508-687-2589. five eight nine five zero eight six eight seven two five eight nine. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. A knot is at Anatosaurus, which is A N A T O S A U R U S on Twitter. And our show is at Majority Fifty Four on Twitter. It's going to be a fantastic weekend. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little nervous about the Bills. They look really good, but I think we're going to win. Uh, hope to see a lot of y'all at the Majority 54 Bowl at Arrowhead on Sunday. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.
2: Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbanile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.